Hello, everybody. Hello. It's lovely to see you all. I hope you are doing well today. Uh, if you're a visitor, if you're new uh, to church, uh, my name is Josh. I am uh, part of the leadership team. It's been good uh, being together so far this morning. And as we get to our time where we look at the Bible, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Daniel. Uh, so even now, you can start turning to Daniel chapter 8, which is where we'll be spending our time today. And we're going to be looking at the, uh, the topic of suffering today, and specifically asking the question, how do we respond in suffering? Now, as Al said last week, Daniel is split into two halves. You've got chapters one to six, narrative, history. It tells you the story about Daniel and his mates, and that they were faithful in very trying situations in Babylon. And then chapter seven to 12, it like, if you're just reading it as one, suddenly it changes, and there's all these sorts of strange pictures and dreams, and it becomes very potentially confusing. And what happens is it goes from historical narrative into a genre called apocalyptic. Has anyone ever sort of got to the end of Daniel or Revelation and thought, what on earth is going on there? A few people quite a few theologians amongst us, which is wonderful, but a few of us have struggled. It's really like confusing languages, like, like, like what is going on? When I first met Nina and was introduced in England, but to, to the Swedish culture, I got introduced to something called salt sweets. Anyone ever tried a salt sweet? A few of us. Now, I got described what these sort of sweets tasted like, okay? And I thought, okay, well, they, they'll be okay. Sound pretty similar to a sweet sweet, but, you know, I think I'll manage it. It's going to be okay. Uh, and then one evening, I was sitting on a sofa with the whole family watching the TV, and this, this big bowl of sweets got handed around with this mix of sweet sweets and salt sweets. And, and in the Schultz-Eckland family, you, it's kind of like survival of the fittest. When the bowl of sweets goes around, you better take a big handful, otherwise you're not going to get any sweets. And so I grabbed my big handful. I was just getting to know Eric and Tom and the family and Nina. And, and I put, everyone's enjoying their sweets. I just chuck one in my mouth. And then I realized it is a salt sweet, not a sweet sweet. And what happens is, by the way, who likes salt sweets? Does anyone actually like salt sweets? Natalie, I bought some for you. Ooh. Almost, almost killed her. They're for Natalie. She likes them. Um, we, and, you know, and I tried this sweet, and all of a sudden, like, my mouth felt like it was going to explode as like, the salt just attacked every part of my mouth. And I was trying to remain cool because I was trying to impress Nina, trying to impress the family. But on the inside, I was dying. Like, I was like, <coughs> honestly, and I thought I was actually going to oh, throw up or do something, but I've managed to get it down. And the good news, the end of the story is the good news is now I'm like addicted to salt sweets. So you go through the first few and then you become addicted. But whatever someone told me about the sweets, it wasn't until I experienced the saltiness of the sweets that I really got like a new understanding of the salt sweet. And as we get to the end of Daniel or Revelation, as we look at apocalyptic writing, what, what we see happening is it, God isn't trying to like confuse us with all these strange pictures. He's just showing us, he's drawing back the curtains and he's showing us a fresh way to look at the story. So we've seen Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. We've seen historical, we've seen things that we can understand. And then what God does is he opens 
up the curtain, and he shows another way of looking at the same story or at things that will come into the future. He, he, he gives us a taste of the salt sweet, if you like, as well as just describing what it is like. And generally, as we approach apocalyptic writing, we will be very wise to tread carefully. I was part of the revelation into the Word yesterday where a bunch of us studied revelation together and speaking to Bernardo and thinking about COVID and, and revelation in Brazil and how things were being linked with COVID. And we need to be very, very careful how we tread when go, coming into apocalyptic writing because things can be seen there that just isn't what the Bible is trying to say. We can make mistakes. We can, as we found out in Daniel 7, and in fact in Daniel 2 as well, we, we can get hints and good guesses as to what is coming across. So in Daniel 7, we have the four beasts. In Daniel 2, we have the statue with four different uh, types of material, gold and bronze and silver and, uh, and iron. And, and you can think, okay, well, these are empires. And Al really helpfully explained last week, okay, we're looking most likely, most people would say it's like a Babylonian empire, it's the Medo-Persian empire, uh, it's the Greek empire, it's the Roman empire. Most people would say it's somewhere like that but we're not going to kind of go hard and fast. This is exactly what it was. This is what it means. We're dogmatic about it. It'd be wise to tread carefully when looking at the genre of the apocalyptic writing. That being said, when we get to Daniel chapter 8, we see something that is so specific to a time in history that commentators would say would, would base that for a reason of Daniel being written after the events. So the, the traditional view of Daniel is it is written 550, approximately, between 600 and 550 BC, before Christ. But what some would say is that actually because of what we read in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 11 is so specific that someone must have written it after the events took place, maybe in around... 150, 100 BC, because Daniel is prophesying into something. And as we get on to it in a minute, we're going to see, wow, there's some real, yeah, just so, so similar to actually what ends up happening. And I believe that Daniel was written before these events. And actually, we trust and we believe in a God who prophesies into events. And as he does that, you, 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 he vindicates his sovereignty Actually, as you see the events unfold, you see now God is sovereign, that things aren't out of control, that God is sovereign over everything, even though sometimes, as we're going to get on to in a minute, we, it, things look like they are out of control. Prophecy, we learned yesterday, actually, it can often be, it's a blessing for the generation. So as they read it, and they, they read the, as something's happening, and they read the words that Daniel got given... They're blessed by it, because they're like, okay, now God is in control, even though it seems like he is not. So if we've got Daniel 8 open, we're going to start reading. Uh, the words come behind me as well, hopefully, and it's in, I'm reading from the NIV. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Okay, so already we've got, um, we remember we go back in time, somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Daniel, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. 
In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west, the north, the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. So at the moment, we've got this, this ram uh, with two horns kind of uncontrollably going north and south and west and becoming great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. So ram that was very powerful suddenly becomes powerless as this goat attacks it. The goat knocked it to the ground, trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. By the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of those horns came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land, which would have been Judah and Israel. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. And pause and take a breath. Everyone with us? Time for communion? We're good? We've all received something from that? Time to move on? Okay, so, so what we've got here, we've got a ram with like one horn slightly longer than the other, kind of going wild, going north and south um, and west. And then there's this goat that kind of goes at breakneck speed. So kind of think road runner, feet not touching the ground, but suddenly comes and slams into this ram with this one horn and all of a sudden becomes very powerful and great. And then that horn breaks off and then out of that horn, four horns come. And then out of those four horns, another horn comes. Right? And then, and then as Daniel sees this, he's like, like, how, like how long is this like, going to be going on for? These two holy people are talking to each other and they say, well, these things have to happen. The daily sacrifice, the rebellion, the surrender of the sanctuary, the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. After those things have happened, approximately 2,300 evenings, the sanctuary will then be reconsecrated. Okay? Confusing. Well, at least it was for me. But what we have as we go on 
reading is an interpretation from the angel Gabriel, of all people. So let's continue reading. Verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. It's interesting, isn't it, how uh, Daniel is able to talk in front of incredibly powerful men, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, King Darius. But when it comes to meeting an angel, it just falls prostrate. It's the power, and it's the same as we looked again yesterday, as John sees Jesus. He just, there's nothing he can do. We joked. We often think, don't we, what question will I ask Jesus when I meet him finally? What am I frustrated with? Now, what will happen is we'll fall down in worship. There will be no other response. And we get a bit of that as we, uh, as we see Daniel meeting Gabriel. I was terrified, I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw, okay, two-horned ram going crazy, that represents the kings of Media and Persia, which we see from history as the kings of Media and Persia, they went to the north, to Iraq, in Iran, they went, uh, they went south into Egypt, they went to the east, sorry, not the west, um, into, um, even, even into parts of uh, I've forgotten now, where is it? Um, into parts of China and uh, northern India. So it's this, uh, uh, and the Persian being a slightly longer horn than the Mede. So that's what Gabriel says is going to be happening. Then he says this shaggy goat, which I love the expression shaggy goat, is moving so fast across the land that we didn't notice it was shaggy before. But now as the, as the wind settles, we see that it's a uh, it's shaggy goat. It's the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. And so what we see here is Greece, and specifically Alexander the Great, who, again, history tells us, at great speed, conquered Media and Persia. And suddenly there's this great empire, the Greek empire, which really no one could stand and the, stand against. And the speed this empire grew was quite amazing, until at a very young age, 33, uh, Alexander the Great died. The four horns that replaced, so the one horn's gone, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of pieces, prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So of this one horn, four horns come. And again, as we read the history books, we see there was four 
uh, generals that took over. That there's, of course, a bit of infighting, and then four generals rose up out of, uh, out of Greece and out of Alexander the Great's leadership. Uh, and out of one of these horns, there's this, there's this small horn that gets given a lot of space in this prophetic dream. And many people, in fact, when I looked over the commentaries, because I wanted to be careful, but many people would say that that was a guy called Antiochus, someone who Alid introduced us to last week, where Daniel 7 can hint at that, but and a guy called Antiochus IV, who, who rises out of this one horn. And he gets, as I said, given a lot of space. And the reason why he gets given more space than, for example, Alexander the Great, whose empire was a lot greater, is because Antiochus IV, what he did was persecute the people of God in a way that is uh, nothing short of horrific, I think. Absolutely horrific what he did in those days. So we've met Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius, who we would all agree were kings of Babylon and scary men who were willing to sort of chop people up if they couldn't give interpretations of dream. They were nothing. They were like little pussycats compared to Antiochus, Antiochus. He, he was called the Mad, Antiochus the Mad by some. He called himself Antiochus Epiphany, li- likening himself to God, God manifest. And what he wanted to do was he couldn't handle the fact that the Jews were worshipping God, the God. And so he straight away wanted them to start worshipping other gods. And so he said, well, you need to start worshipping the God Baal. And he took away the Sabbath. You can now no longer celebrate the Sabbath. In fact, he took away the observance of really all festivals, all Jewish festivals, everything that they celebrated. He said, you can't do that anymore. You can't even observe the Mosaic law on point of death. If I see you doing that, then you will be killed. He took away circumcision, uh, which, oh, and if he found been struggling whether I should say this or not, but if he found babies that were circumcised, he would have them killed. And some historians would say that they would actually hang the babies around the necks of the mothers. This guy was horrific. And the persecution on the Lord's people in this time was heartbreaking and horrific. He re-consecrated the temple where the Jews obviously so valued the temple to Zeus. And, in, and where they sacrificed, where they did their daily sacrifices, he would sacrifice unclean animals like pigs, sort of spray the blood around the temple. You're talking about like an extremely horrific time for the people of God. We, I, I don't think that we can really compare it to anything that we have experienced. And God gives Daniel this horrific glimpse into the future and the question, as I've been studying this, is like, why? Why would you do that? The future seems horrific. Why would you do that? And I believe that God does that because he demonstrates that even though rams and goats and horns seem horrific and persecute in ways that are just heartbreaking... I was like, I don't know if I can share this because I'm going to break down in horrific ways. Even though they seem completely uncontrollable, they are in some way part of a sovereign God's plan. 
even though it seems the world is going crazy, God is sovereign. And we read, and I mean, if you've been with us for any of this series, you're gonna, you know, chapter one, God is sovereign. Chapter two, oh yeah, God's sovereign. Three, four, five, six, he is sovereign. You see it every time you open a different chapter in the book of Daniel. And, and Daniel gets given this horrific view into the future. But what we see is that there is a sovereign God who, even though it doesn't make sense, is over it. And we see in verse 17 of chapter 4 that he rules and he reigns. He gives kingdoms to who he wants. And so whether it's powerful rulers that are under God's sovereignty, whether it's people, his people, God's people suffering, it's under God's sovereignty. And then we read verse 25, yet he will be destroyed. There's an end. He will be destroyed. And we had that in Daniel 2, this little stone that hits the statue. Suddenly, this, the gospel, as the gospel comes in, all other kingdoms will eventually disappear and we will all together join in with the saints and the angels and everyone else and the fish in the sea, as we were re- reading in Revelation 5 yesterday, in worshipping our King Jesus, who wins. There will be an end. It says it in verse 25 says it in chapter 7, says it many, many times, that Jesus, is the Son of Man, gets given all authority. He wins. So that's the end of suffering, that Jesus wins. That's the end, and that's good news. It's great worshipping together this morning. It's like, hey, worship Jesus, because he wins. But, and I think there is a bit of a but, because that doesn't deal necessarily with the reality of the now. What, 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 what about up until verse 25? And we live a little bit, don't we? Like that we have that reality in our lives that there is suffering. Yes, we know Jesus wins. We absolutely know that. But the reality is yesterday something really difficult happened to me. Perhaps next week something really difficult is going to happen. And we live in this now and not yet moment. And it's difficult to live in that moment. So how do you respond to this level of suffering. And as I said, like, praise God, we're, we're not having to deal with an Antiochus at the moment. Who knows what the future holds? Who knows? But at the moment, we're not. Not in this nation. In some nations, there's horrific, horrific persecution of Christians. Horrific. There's a child in, I think, North Korea, imprisoned, the family imprisoned, including a two-year-old child for owning a Bible, I think was the reason. So in some nations, this is, this is actually a lot closer to home. But for us, it's not like that. But there's so much suffering still in our lives. And the question is, how do we respond to that level of suffering? And I think verse 27 gives us like a beautiful, honest answer. And it says this, I, Daniel, was worn out. I was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up, I went about the king's business, I was appalled by the vision, it was beyond understanding. We have this response from like, Daniel, the one who like, is able to see Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and like, sort of interpret them, this incredibly wise, God-fearing, faithful man, and he's worn out, he's exhausted by what God shows him. 
And we see this honest and vulnerable response to a man who has just seen a heartbreaking future for his people. Notice that not even this, it, it, this happens about 300 years after the prophetic dream. So he's not actually going to deal with this level of suffering. But his heart goes out to his people, the, God, the people of, of God. And he's honest, he's vulnerable, he's appalled, and he just sleeps. So it's funny, I was thinking about this. That the, next, the sequel to, for the next children's book from Daniel's and the, Daniel and the Lion's Den is, Daniel took a nap. <laughs> and so I was thinking actually all the parents would be like, yes, we'll buy that. Dream, perfect, like bedtime story, that isn't it. Actually, it is a good birth- bedtime story. There we go. Yeah. Trademark. Don't take it. Um, but, but he slept, and he was exhausted. And what we see here is that he, Daniel is real. And friends, it's okay to be affected by things. It's okay to be appalled. It's okay to be upset and heartbroken. I, I come from a country where you kind of... In the delivery room, as you're born, you kind of like they, they sort of give you a stiff upper lip. They like glue it down. And, and what that means is that you don't show emotion. Whatever happens, do not show emotion. It's the British stiff upper lip. I don't know if that translates, but you don't show emotion. Actually, that's not what we see here. We see Daniel exhausted. We see Daniel appalled. And it's okay to be affected by things. It's okay to be affected. Again, Nehemiah is a great example. Chapter 1 of uh, Nehemiah, as he hears the, uh, the walls around Jerusalem are burnt down, it breaks his heart. That's Jerusalem. And he just, he, he cries. For, again, I think, again, I think it's for a few, a few days. So it's okay to show emotion. It's okay to be confused, which I think is also really, really helpful. Gabriel is explaining the dream to Daniel. You think if anyone's going to explain a bit of scripture, you kind of think you've got Gabriel there explaining to you what it means, and he still doesn't understand. He's still confused. And as he's wrestling with this question of suffering, as we wrestle with this question of suffering, it's okay to be appalled, and it is okay to be confused. It is okay not to have answers. It is okay not to understand why suffering takes place. That's okay. I love, again, we've got Daniel, he's a big brain. You've got Gabriel trying to explain to him, he's like, I don't understand. Andrew Wilson is maybe a big brain in the theological world of New Frontiers today. uh, We love often quoting for him, when he talks about wrestling with the question of suffering, and specifically his best answer, we're talking about one of the best theological brains, I would argue, in the world, uh, when he responds to the, uh, the question, why does God allow suffering, his answer is this, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand why God allows suffering. I don't understand why God allowed this horn to sort of do everything that it did. And we see pictures here that do repeat other evil empires rising and falling, the people of God being broken, suffering, being persecuted, people who aren't followers of Jesus being broken, suffering. It's like, why? And 
Sometimes there's just, there's just no answers. And that's okay. Daniel, the dream interpreter, didn't have answers. He didn't understand. You can read the book of Job, which is a, the classic book about suffering, and it ends up with no answers. In fact, God starts to ask him questions. Where were you? But God doesn't give him answers, even though he's suffered horrific loss, Job. But he doesn't get them. And as we sort of bring that to 2023, we know that times are very uncertain. We know that times are heartbreaking. Even reading in the news of that horrific train crash in India happened just a couple of days ago. It's like people, kids, families. Oh, heartbreaking, isn't it? It really is. There really is suffering in this world. We don't need visions of rams and goats and horns to see that. We just need to open our eyes. We just need to turn on the news. We just need to walk out on our street. And it, and it can appall us. It should appall us. And it can be hard to understand. And it should be hard to understand. You, see, you can imagine the Jews looking at what Antiochus is doing in the temple as he sacrifices pigs in God's temple. And they probably remember the story of Uzzah, who was in 1 Chronicles 13, who, as they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant towards Jerusalem with David, the, the uh, oxen stumbles, and Uzzah does what I think anyone would do. We don't want the Ark to touch the floor. Let's quickly hold it, hold it out of hand. And God strikes him down. And they're probably thinking, okay, so you did that to one of your own people, Uzzah, who actually really was just trying to help the ark. You were allowing Antiochus to do what? It's like, what's, what? this goes beyond understanding, God. How? How are you allowing this? We don't know. We just don't know. There's no good theological answer. Things go beyond Understanding. We were in uh, the UK over Christmas and there was a, a girl in her 20s who just suffered a fit from the church and she never woke up again. In her 20s. There was another guy in Cockermouth just a couple of years before who went out, a guy in his 40s, young guy, I think 40 is still young, he's 37 on Monday. <laughs> uh, yes, Lucas. Um, uh, and he went out to do the recycling and never came home. And I think we all have stories to tell. Or if we don't, sadly, we're going to, and it's like, what? Like, it's just, why? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know why God allows suffering. But a big question that we have to reckon with in discipleship, in following Jesus, in becoming good disciples of Jesus is this. What do we do with that answer? What do we do with the, I don't know? How do we respond when we see the reality of suffering in our lives and in the nations, in, the, in our nation, in the nations? What do we do with that answer? And I love Matt Chandler in, uh, in the States, the village church in the States, and he, he says, it's okay to not be okay. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. We, we, as a church, we don't want you to come on a Sunday and put on a face and say, oh, how, how are you today? Oh, it's all brilliant, even though you're kind of like breaking on the inside. It's like you're eating a salty sweet on the inside. You just want to throw up. But actually, you just go, oh, yeah, it's all great. No, we don't want shiny Christians. We want people who are real because life is difficult. Life is hard. And that's okay. 
It's okay not to be okay. But then what Matt Chandler goes on to say, but it's not okay to stay there. And, and I think what he means by that is, actually, we've, we've got a responsibility to... It's okay not to be okay. But then it, we've got a responsibility to see Jesus in it. To see the sovereignty of God. In, even in the suffering. And so Daniel, what we see with Daniel, which I, I just love, is that he was exhausted, he was knackered, sleeping, appalled, confused... And then it says this, then I got up and went about the king's business. Which is just beautiful. In the NASB, it says again. I got up again. So it's this like, idea of like, okay, he's, he's in a place that's not, he's struggling, but he gets up again. And he goes about the king's business. What does that mean? It means that he gets on with what God has called him to do, even though there's questions of, that aren't answered in his head. He's like, I'm struggling. I don't know what's happening. I can't explain it. I'm struggling on a personal level. I'm struggling with what's going to happen in the future. But I'm not going to wait. I'm going to get on with what God's called me to do. I'm not going to allow it to rob me with the calling that God has given to me. We, I, I've been watching a brilliant Swedish YouTuber called Maori absolutely love him so good at interviews and he recently interviewed preppers preppers that's a hard word to say uh, which I think is Swedish and English and it's people who basically prepare uh, for the end of the world by like having a cabin up in the north of Sweden somewhere having 10 years worth of food and so if that button gets pressed or whatever they can kind of go there and survive they go underground which is great. And one of the guys he interviewed had to use up all his food because he'd run out of money. But generally, they're going to survive in, in the future, apart from this guy who's now got any food, not got any food. But what Daniel could have done is he could have become a prepper. He could have become someone who, paralyzed with fear and uncertainty and frustrations over suffering and what God is allowing to happen... He could have become a prepper. How were you a loving God if you're allowing that to happen? I'm going to go underground. I'm not going to bother doing, you know, and we know Daniel's history, don't we? He is an exile himself. He's been pulled out of his family home. It's happened before, it's going to happen again, I'm going underground. He could be paralyzed with frustrations. But what he does is he heads off to work. He heads off to what God has called him to. And I really felt, just as uh, Nina, as Emily led us in the song, and as Nina got us to, uh, to sing again this, this I Will Not Stay Silent song and encouraging us that there's a, there's a prophetic edge, which I wholeheartedly agree with, with that song at the moment for us as a church. There's this line uh, that says, we're like, going to take back our song. And Daniel takes back his song, if you like. He's affected, but he goes back to work. Doesn't have everything sorted. He's still not understanding. Yet he gets on with what God has called him to. He takes back his song. And I believe there's people in this room today who need to take back your song. Uh, We read in uh, John 10 that the enemy, the thief, comes to steal kill and destroy. That, that, the, the, what the enemy does is he takes our song and he says, go underground, become a prepper, 
be paralyzed with fear, question God about suffering. If you don't get answers, don't love him anymore. He obviously doesn't love you. That's what the enemy says. He, he, he's a thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And I believe as a church, I believe there's perhaps people in here this morning who need to take back their song. Who need to say, even though I don't understand, and even though, yeah, like there's just so much questions in my head about suffering, I'm brokenhearted, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to work in the king's temple. And this is a big question in discipleship. How do we respond in the suffering? Do we let it like, like knock us off course? Or do we take back our song? Do we say even in the suffering, even in the challenge, I'm going to sing. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go to what God, you have called me to do. And I believe Daniel is able to do that, not because he's a great person, but because he sees the sovereignty of God. He sees Jesus. He sees the victory. He sees the verse 25, that he wins, that all these empires one day will be destroyed. And you can imagine as, as this event is taking place, as the Jews are actually going through this sort of horrific suffering, that they open the scroll of Daniel and they see all this prophetic imagery as something that seems to be unfolding and then they read verse 25. Which wouldn't have been in verses at that time. <laughs> but he will be destroyed. They would have been holding on to those words. And that's what the prophetic does. It brings hope. It brings confidence. It brings a reality that he will win. That even though things look difficult, and not just look difficult, are difficult, he will win. So it means we don't need to be paralyzed. We don't need to prep. Don't need to get off, or go off into the forest. Why? Because God is sovereign even in the suffering, that he wins. Helped, the prophetic helps people preserve. And friends, Life can often throw things that we don't expect, that we don't want, that make us question. And it's okay to question. And it's okay not to understand. As I said, we don't need to be faking Christianity. It's okay to be heartbroken. It's okay not to understand. But what God is calling us to be is a people who trust him, a people who are faithful in exile, a people who know that even though we don't understand, God understands, and he is sovereign. And we have the promises that verse 25 or chapter 7 talk about or many other places in Scripture talk about because even with questions and concerns, we get to go to work because we know that God wins. I wonder if we could um, worship. I'm going to read... Uh, uh, I'm going to read Revelation 5. We, as I said, we, did, uh, we studied Revelation a bit yesterday, which is fun, looking at Daniel and Revelation. They're such helpful books. And I think when we come to apocalyptic writing, as I said at the beginning, it's important that we, we look at it and we allow, we, we, we don't, we're not scared, but actually we study these books because there's such truth. And Revelation, again, the, the story of Revelation is this, that Jesus wins. There'll be suffering, there'll be challenge, 
There'll be difficulty, but Jesus wins. Isn't that an amazing hope? How do we respond in suffering? It's okay not to understand. It's okay to be appalled. It's okay to be tired. But Jesus wins. Let's go about what God has called us to do, having faith that he is sovereign, that he wins. This is what Revelation 5 says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, look, taste. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. <laughs> then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne. And the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every creature, and on the sea and in the sea and all that is in them, every creature, beautifully saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor, be glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We're going to worship now. We're going to take back our song. I'll encourage you to stand. We're going to worship the Lamb who was slain. He wins. And we get to worship him. We get to join him with his angels in worship of who he is.